This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. We have a delightfully eclectic arts tour this week with conversations that span from New York City to Kansas City, plus a stopover in Columbia. We've got a board game that became a stage show via a movie and a musical. We have a conversation with Missouri's sixth poet laureate. And staying in the literary world, we're going to take a little advanced peek at Columbia's own One Read program so that we can whet our appetites for what is coming this September. So if your glasses are charged with your preferred Thursday evening tipple and you are sitting comfortably, we'll start with a little board game history and a visit to New York. I always wanted to be Miss Scarlet as she was clearly the most glamorous option in the board game Clue, or Cluedo as I called it growing up in England. The board game had been dreamt up by a British board game designer during the war who had spent the early part of his career as a musician playing piano recitals in hotels and on cruise ships, popular venues for murder mystery games and the inspiration for the game he came up with in 1943 originally called murder. He filed a patent for the game and thanks to a friend got introduced to the managing director of a games manufacturing company and six years later in 1949 Cluedo hit the shelves. And there it stayed until 1985 when a British stage director Jonathan Lynn turned it into a screenplay for an all-star cast including Tim Curry, Madeleine Kahn, Christopher Lloyd and famously three different endings with theatres receiving just one of the three alternate denouement. In 97, 1997, Clue became a musical and then in 2018, and thanks to some rewriting and adapting by actor and playwright Sandy Rustin, it made it to the stage as a grand farce play, which surely it had always wanted to be. And as luck would have it, the play is about to make its Ararock Lyceum Theatre debut, opening next week and directed by someone who is very familiar with both the plot and the mind of Colonel Mustard, award-winning actor and director John Tracy Egan, who is joining me this evening from his home in New York. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, John. Thank you, Diana. Boy, you did your research. That was really fascinating to listen to it all put together like that. That's amazing. Yeah, I had no idea about any of that stuff. So it is always fascinating what you find out about when you like dig beneath the surface a little bit. So who was your go-to Cluedo player growing up? And did you have an image of what your player was like as a person? Oh, well, I was definitely Colonel Mustard, I think, because that was always the one everybody would go to. It was Colonel Mustard, you know, in the in the <laughs> lounge with the wrench, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I was, yeah, I was always Colonel Mustard, but I have to say Miss Scarlet was pretty glamorous. So we always were kind of leaning toward Miss Scarlet. Let's face it. Yeah, absolutely. I never wanted to be anybody else apart from Miss Scarlet. So famously, the movie version, as I said, had three different endings. And depending on what theater you saw the movie in, the outcome was different. But that is not the case with the stage play where murder arrives in the same guise every night. And for you, having spent time with the stage play, have you pondered how the play might achieve the different ending excitement of the movie? 
It does. I think Sandy Rustin has done a really great job of giving the audience everything in a play and having them feel when they walk out that they got a little bit of what they wanted. So I can't give anything away, but the really interesting thing is you get a lot of versions of things and nobody walks out, I think, disappointed that they were wrong, more or less, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Would it be possible even within a stage version to have the actors prep for different endings? Or would that just be absolute mayhem? Well, I mean, you know, the musical The Mystery of Edwin Drood, you would choose the lovers at the end of the night and you would choose the murderer at the end of the night. And, and I think all six actors had a song about their confession. And then I think all the other actors had to all prepare to become lovers, whoever the audience picked as the lovers. So yes, it can be done, I think. But I think in this version, uh, there's a lot to figure out in, in Clue. And there are a lot of ways to watch it and watch one character go through their entire journey and see if you can figure out where something happens or something different changes. Mm. So the setting is a deserted New England mansion in 1954. Six guests have been invited to dinner by the unpleasant Mr. Body. Great name. Uh, give us a synopsis of the play without giving anything away from from that point. And let me be a little brief bio on who is there. Who are the guests? Sure. So let's go there. So Colonel Mustard is a retired colonel. Professor Plum is, I don't want to say defrocked is the wrong word, but uh, he was, a, um, he was a, a professor that was asked to leave his, his uh, university. Miss Scarlet is a madam. Mrs. Peacock is the wife of a senator. Mrs. White is sort of a strange character um, in society who has been accused of Situations where her husband has has died and she's been accused of being the reason for the husband passing away. And Mr. Green, who has a secret and he is there to basically, I uh, can't really tell you what Mr. Green's secret is. So they're, they're all coming because their financial situation is in dire straits because of this blackmailer. And that's why they show up that evening. So they've all been sent a letter to arrive at this night for a dinner because they're being blackmailed. But neither character knows anything or knows any of the characters when they arrive. They're all strangers appearing at the same evening. But all they know as individuals is that they received a letter from Mr. Body that you better show up at this evening because they, he has been blackmailing them for a while and they will hopefully come to the end of their blackmail if they show up. But things change throughout the evening. So the film came out during the Reagan administration and the stage play during Trump's term. And I know this is a farce and not about politics, but I think it was the New York Times that commented that the production could have used a stronger political backbone. How much did the playwright Sandy Rustin up date the script to reflect the modern political area? I mean, maybe not at all. And do you think it could have used some extra tweaks? I think what happened was uh, we went into sort of the McCarthy hearings, which made things, uh, everybody was on edge because you never knew who was going to be thrown up in front of the hearings and 
life was going to be destroyed if they were convicted. And it was sort of a bit of a witch hunt. So I think what she wanted to kind of go back to by picking the McCarthy hearings is, first of all, it's a great period. Everything looks great. The costumes look great. But it's also that it was a scary time. There was no social media. Everything was radio and television. um, And it was specific times of the day. So you weren't necessarily getting bombarded with information. So once you took the information... If you were going down, it was very hard to kind of change your reputation in the McCarthy era. And I think that thing about the McCarthy hearings is that time was very, very scary. Lives were destroyed during that period. And these characters are on the brink of having their lives destroyed by this blackmailer. Not necessarily the McCarthy hearings, but the blackmailer and how it sort of mixes the time period. It was that scary time period. I feel at some point a a 2020 piece would be good to to reflect the time we currently live in. Uh, Well, absolutely. But, you know, there's a funny thing about, um, I think, especially Americans seeing something that they're going through in the time. I mean, I remember the play Enron coming to Broadway after, um, you know, the big the crash. And it was not a success in America because Americans did not want to go and watch that happening on stage. Uh, it was a more popular in, uh, in other countries, but the Americans were like, nope, too, too soon, too sensitive. <laughs> too much too soon, right? You know, too much too <laughs> soon. But the thing about Clue is it's fun and it's funny and it has such a fan base. I have to say, I was amazed that, you know, when we first performed it at the Cleveland Playhouse, people came in costume. The Cleveland Playhouse put out a whole bunch of board game versions of Clue so people could play. If they arrived early, they could play Clue in the lobby before they came in and watched the show. And people just were ready for the lines. They were ready for the characters. They were ready to kind of relive some of the great moments in the movie, but yet at the same time be entertained by something completely different that still works on stage. Well, I'm going to have to rethink my outfit now you're telling me that people come in costume. Oh, no, you got to come. You have to come as Miss Scarlet. Come on, that's what you've been planning your whole career. (laughs) I think I have the wig for it. Excellent. I'm prepared. So you played Colonel Mustard, as you said, earlier this year at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey and then at uh, Cleveland. And so I'm curious whether being in a play and then directing it is a help or a hindrance. Well, first of all, this is it's a gigantic help because I, as I say to my actors and I say to even friends and family who, who see it, it's a 90 minute play. Um, and I said, it's a really, really difficult play because you have to be on in your brain for 90 minutes straight. You can't take a break. You know, musicals, certain plays, you know, you go off, you're not on, or other people have songs, you listen to them sing them songs. This is so rapid fire, and you have to just be planning your next move while you're speaking. So it was completely helpful because we had a, a brilliant director. Casey Hushin is a wonderful director. She's one of, I've probably my most favorite director I've ever worked with in my career, honestly, because she's kind and she's funny and she's inventive and she's fun. So it's fun to be in the room with her. And I learned a lot as a director from her. I learned a lot as a person from her. And I learned how quickly this show has to be put up at Arrow Rock. So I had the guideline of how everything that works. So rather than Casey started from scratch, we were in Cleveland. We had a lot of weeks to start from scratch and to build the play. I don't have that luxury. We have to go right into telling everybody where they're standing and then they have to build their performances 
while they're moving because that's what summer theater is about. Um, that's what a lot of regional theater is about. You don't have the luxury of rehearsal. But we did in the beginning, and that gave me the opportunity to see how to build the play, you know, work on things that we, we thought could be a little bit different in our version because we have a different set, we have a different situation, we have different actors. So I always tell my team that I walk in the room with plan A, B, C, D is in my back pocket, and if I want E, I have to go out to the trunk and get it out of the car. <laughs> but at least you packed it. <laughs> I packed it. And honestly, you I really think you have to be flexible because also there's the element of the actors. The actors have to create. You can't give them every moment. They have to, you know, it's a living art. They have to create their performances. They have to build their performances. But when you're working quickly, I'm going to say, listen, you have to trust me. You're going to stand here and you're going to walk over here. And then you're going to say that line. How you say that line is up to you. <laughs> you know, and what you're feeling. Let me tell you what I think is happening in this situation, you know, to kind of help them along a little bit quicker because the process is faster in regional theater. So am I right in thinking for this production at the Lyceum, you are directing it remotely from New York? So here's a story, Diana. <laughs> This is a first, right? Unfortunately, I had an accident a week and a half ago where I um, tore my quadricep muscle completely from my knee. So so it is not attached to my knee right now. And when I went to the doctor or when I went to the emergency room, he, they said, lift your leg. I said, I can't. I, he said, does it hurt? I said, no, it doesn't hurt really. And he said, well, that's a bad sign. <laughs> so, so they said... Uh, you kind of need an emergency uh, surgery. The longer you wait, the harder it is to reattach the muscle. So I called Quinn and Quinn is a trooper. And I said, here's the deal. I think I can do this from Zoom. Let's try it and see if this works. And of course, we've been working from Zoom. I'm in New York on Zoom. Thank goodness. Hey, look, the COVID did one good thing. <laughs> it taught everybody Zoom. <laughs> it only taught us one thing, Zoom. So I've been directing from Zoom. I have a great team of stage managers, and we are all amazed that we've gotten the stage complete. We've gotten the show completely staged, and we are now kind of in the rehearsal period of in five days. So we're we're staged and we're rehearsing the play, taking it apart, re-rehearsing scenes. Because I think once actors love to have their staging because they learn their lines quicker. When you know where you're standing, you know what to say sometimes. If you don't know where you're going, it's sometimes hard to remember your lines, but it's sort of a little of rub your tummy, pat your head kind of moment there. You know, you know where to speak and you know where to walk. So you can see everybody. You're on Zoom. You can see the whole stage. I can see the whole rehearsal room. I haven't seen the stage yet. I've seen the rehearsal room. I can see the way the floor is taped. I can see the moving in the furniture. I can see the actors upstage and downstage moving around. I have to say, I really don't know if it would go much faster with me in the room. Sometimes I have to say, can you say that again? Because I didn't hear it when someone asks a question. But it's really going fast. And I'm shocked that I think Quinn said the first day, he said, it was like you were in the room the whole time. I said, yeah, because I was on, <laughs> on screen. But I'm so lucky. I'm sorry I have such a great cast. And the and Arrow Rock team is, is great. I just hope my knee being reattached goes as well. <laughs> right. I have this vision of you as this little disembodied head on a screen just kind of being wheeled around on a little drinks trolley. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. No, they have me just sitting with the stage manager and they turn the computer toward the cast. And when he's done, he turns it back to him to ask questions. And it's great. I sit here with a big glass of water and a couple of dogs and a Star Wars T-shirt. <laughs> and, you know, life is, life is good. <laughs> 
I love the description that Broadway World said of the LA debut, that it is chock full of physical comedy, sight gags and dorky goodness. This board game comes to life is a wonderful distraction for 21st century realities. And it seems like we all have this big need for distractions. I mean, and our need has multiplied in magnitudes since 2018. What do you think is the temperature of audiences in 2022 in your experience? Is hard hitting out and escapism in? You know what? I think it's a little bit of both, Diana. I went and saw POTUS on Broadway, which is a very side-splitting physical comedy uh, farce. And the audience was losing their mind. They were laughing so hard. They were beside themselves. It was full, full, full to the brim of people. And I would walk by some of the other theaters and talk to some of my friends coming out of the theater. How's your show? Oh, yeah, we're, well, we got a lot of empty seats. And I thought, yeah, people are going to the comedies and they're going. There's no no intermission on POTUS. There's no intermission at Clue. So there's no going to the bar where you can maybe pick up COVID. I don't know. But back then, uh, we were all wearing masks. I think it's hard for some people, if they still have to wear masks, they really don't want to sit there. I actually find it's easier to just sit there with a mask on than it is to do anything else, than to walk around, than to go shopping. So if you're wearing a mask in the theater, that is the easiest place to do it because you're just sitting there. And I think people do want to laugh and they don't, you know, that COVID year was a hard year for everybody. So they don't want any Sturm and Drang. I think they really want to see Pratt Falls and... And they like what they know, you know, and people know Clue and people, as my, my friend Bob Bitsum is a great director, I would say, you know, I like to go home and I like to put on a movie I can trust. And I love that expression. <laughs> yes. It's a movie he's seen a hundred times. He knows where the laughs are. And we all love that. We love to have a movie we can trust. I think Clue on stage <laughs> is a show you can trust. If you're a fan of the game, if you're a fan of the movie, if you're a fan of laughing and just silliness, it gets really silly. It starts off one way and just gets really silly. What does Broadway feel like now in mid-2022? I read so many articles back in 2020 and 21 about how people were leaving the profession in droves, back-of-house people. I mean, people were having to retrain. There was no jobs for technical stagehands and choreographers and lighting designers. Is there a dearth of talent today or has everybody wandered back? What does it feel like now? I think it's a little 50-50. I think when people realized, you know, it just kept going on, dragging on, and they thought, well, we've got to come up with something else. So a lot of people went into other professions or, or moved away to figure out what they wanted to do rather than theater because they there was no theater happening. And uh, there's always actors coming to New York that want to be on stage. There's always people who want to produce shows. But I think there's a a lot of fresh blood every year coming to Broadway. There are people who definitely came back. There are people who changed positions. And the hard part, I think, with Broadway is still suffering from a little bit is that Broadway depends on tourists. The first six months of a hit Broadway show are New Yorkers. The rest of the run are tourists and people from outside the city coming in to see stuff. And until those people are really comfortable with coming back. And there are hardcore people who come back and go to everything. I mean, The Music Man is a hit. Hamilton is still packing them in. The really, really hot shows are still packing them in. The not as popular hot shows are struggling a little more because that's what happens. The tourists will come and see Hamilton and Wicked and then they'll get two more shows that maybe are not as popular. But that'll keep those shows open. 
And I think that's where we are right now is we're trying to get back to having all the theaters running at full capacity because before COVID, Broadway was booming. It was just there, you know, there's a line of shows waiting to come in. I believe there still are a line of shows waiting to come in, but the timing has to be right with the theater and with the with the producers. And even I think with our production of Clue that we did at Cleveland, I think there was a really strong possibility that Clue would at some point come in to Broadway with our cast, but I think it lost momentum over two years because it was supposed to go to Paper Mill rather quickly. And then there was kind of talk of us maybe moving, but after two years, the good news for Clue was tons of regional theaters wanted to do it. But they were nervous, I think, about bringing it to Broadway because nobody wanted to take the hit. So they thought, well, we're doing really well with regional theater. Let's see how that goes. And there may be some day that they bring it in. I think it's, uh, is it top of the the most produced play in 2021 in regional theaters? If it's not, it it will be in 2022 and 2023. But Clue, I'm telling you, we added shows in Cleveland. I think Paper Mill will tell you that their box office was constantly, the phone was ringing and they were making uh, they were doing very, very well, and Cleveland did very, very well. So it almost really felt like a no-brainer to move it. But again, you have to have the producer who is brave enough to do that. And you have to find the people who are going to, to fund it, because it's not like somebody's walking around with all that money in their pocket saying, yeah, I'll do it. No, it's usually a whole team of producers. I mean, I think you've seen, if you've ever go to a Broadway show now, the producing list is longer than... The cast list, that's for sure. So you are not a stranger to the Ararock Lyceum Theatre. I think you were here in 2018 for the comedy of tenors. Yes. Which, interestingly, I saw that you were directed by Harry Booby, who is going to be your butler in this production of Clue. So you've switched roles a little bit. It was my time to get even. (laughs) And I'm always amazed at the pulling power of this small theatre in a tiny town very, very far away from any madding crowds in the middle of Missouri. And I don't have a sense of whether there are all manner of tiny towns across the United States that are home to tiny but mighty theatres that sell out almost all their shows. How unique is the Lyceum Theatre in the nationwide field of regional theatre? Well, I'll tell you, for me, it is definitely the most remote of any of the theaters <laughs> I've ever played. Um, <laughs> I laugh. And uh, we would say it's, you know, two hours from any airport, half an hour from any Walmart. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's the entertainment factor is like, we're you know, let's go shopping. And we don't get a lot of time off. We get, you know, daytimes are off to basically make meals and go to the gym. And then, you know, your day off is to, we take a little road trip someplace and, and do something kind of fun. <laughs> to get a Starbucks. Yeah, to get a Starbucks. <laughs> but uh, th- there are lots of towns that have lots of little theaters. And it's, it's theater summer camp. And um, it's really kind of fun to, to, to be out of the city and to go and hang out with your friends and do a show. And I'm, I'm sad that I don't get to be with them every night to play games. We'd probably be playing Clue, as a matter of fact, and other <laughs> games. And, you know, having barbecues and just laughing and telling stories. And um, I don't get the fun of summer camp this year, but I do get the fun of directing such a great cast. But again, I told them, I said, guys, be careful. Be ready. Be ready. You cannot check out at all during the play. (laughs) Because I will tell you, having been in the production, two different productions with mostly the same cast, there have been moments where there's silence and everyone's looking at each other like, well, it's not my line. (laughs) 
and then suddenly realizes, oh no, it is my line, and then they say it. So, you know, we have to be very, very careful. It's it's very fast and very tight. But at least you get to stay home with your brand new puppy, who I, I can hear bouncing around in the background. So that's good. Oh dear, he is a <laughs> he's a terror. He he knows when I'm busy that I think I'm going to go rip up a cardboard box while you're on. I just threw something to him that was soft and quiet to try to stop him from ripping up a box. <laughs> so he let go with a squeaky toy. <laughs> so he let go, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Clue, directed by my guest, John Tracy Egan, opens at the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock next Friday, August the 12th, and runs for two weeks, closing with a matinee performance on Sunday, August the 21st. You can find a full cast list and a description at lyceumtheatre.org. And if you want to find out more about my guest, you can visit his website at officialjohntracyegan.com. John Tracy, I look forward to laughing out loud at the Lyceum Theatre and thank you so much for making time to chat today. Thank you, Diana. This was delightful. It was so nice to talk to you and uh, I hope you have fun. Get that scarlet wig. <laughs> I'll send a picture. <laughs> Good. I do not usually read poetry. If someone asked me if I like poetry, I would probably do that eh, face. It's just not something that I tend to seek out, and I suspect that's because I'm both a super fast and a rather lazy reader. I love long books where the story is rolled out for me and all I have to do is gallop along. Poetry requires a lot more of my brain. It requires me to slow down and smell the verbal roses. Reading more poetry would definitely be good for me. And I say all this by way of a confession to my guest this evening, Missouri's sixth poet laureate, Mary Frances Wagner. Missouri has only had a poet laureate since 2008 when Columbia's Walter Bargan was appointed by Jay Nixon. Interesting side note here, the only state never to have had a poet laureate is Massachusetts, while New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Michigan used to have a poet laureate but then abolished the post. In Missouri, poet laureates are appointed for two-year terms, selected from public nominations which are then vetted by the Missouri Poet Laureate Committee, comprised of the state's former poet laureates and overseen by the Missouri Arts Council. Mary Frances Wagner was appointed in July last year and has, as one of her goals, the desire to reach out to people who don't usually read poetry or even think they like it. So here I am right in her target market. As well as being an award-winning poet with multiple published collections to her name, Mary Frances taught English and creative writing at Raytown High School and the University of Missouri, Kansas City for 30 years. She's been involved with Kansas City's Literary Community Center, The Writer's Place, since its founding and has been a board member of the American Poet Series. And it was, in fact, my neighbor and good friend, Nick Kenny, who reached out to me and asked if he could connect me with, quote, the best teacher I ever had. And here she is, Mary Frances Wagner. What an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I love that you print out poems and then just hand them to random people in the supermarket or the coffee shop. And you might leave a poem in a restroom or a doctor's office and you just mail people a poem that you think might touch them. Is this something you've always done or is it part of being Poet Laureate? Well, the Missouri Poet Laureate is supposed to distribute poetry around the state in the form of workshops or readings or presentations. 
And Karen Crego, who was the fifth Poet Laureate, and I have called ourselves the COVID Poet Laureates because we have not been able to travel around the state. And so I said to Michael Donovan, who is really sort of my boss at Missouri Arts Council, that I didn't want to be a slacker Poet Laureate, so I wanted to do some projects. And the first project became the Tiny Books Project. And I had these little books made that have one poem in them and they fold out and they look just like a little book. And they're very lovely. I had them printed and I represented first 10 Missouri poets. And I had a thousand of them made of those 10. And I had sent probably 50 of each to each of the 10 poets. Well, nine, because I was one of the 10. And their rule or their guideline was that they had to hand them to non-writers. They had to give them to people that probably didn't read poetry, like their doctor, their plumber, a neighbor, someone they pass walking, throw them in a grocery bag. (laughs) And I said to them to please tell each person you hand one to, to either keep it if they want to, but if they don't, to please pass it on. And if they do pass it on, to tell that person to pass it on so that we can keep these going all around the state as much as possible. When I picked the poets, I picked them from all different areas of the state. So I represented all the different regions. At first, Mac was a little bit uh, apprehensive about the project. They didn't think it would look very good. They didn't really want to support it. And I said, is it all right if I pay for it myself? And they said, well, if you want to, you can. So I did. And then I sent them a bunch of them and they loved it. And they, they thought, oh, these are darling. Let's make some more and we'll pay for them this time. So they bought the second batch and I made another thousand with another group of Missouri poets. But I have two other projects. One of them is done. That project is called The Literary State and it is 10 podcasts with 10 different poets in Missouri. And Those are 10 to 15 minute podcasts that you can download on Anchor or Spotify. And in each one, I ask the poet to answer two craft questions about writing and then to give a writing prompt and then to uh, read two of his or her own poems. And now I'm headed into the next project, which is the haiku single image project. That one has not been launched yet. We're still working out the details, but it is going to be open to anybody in the state who wants to participate. And I'm hoping that a whole lot of people who don't usually write poetry would at least participate. And I'm going to try to get some significant people to contribute to just, you know, raise that bar of of participation. The most famous single image poem is William Carlos Williams, famous poem, The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. 
Now, the goal of a single image poem is to literally create an image. You can use any of the senses, but always a visual as well as trying to appeal to other senses. So that's coming up for my third project, and that will again be open to anyone who wants to okay so look out for the haiku single image project that's coming up let me ask you a little bit about your background with poetry you were introduced to poetry at a young age your mother would leave little poems in your lunchbox and on your pillow at night and you would write poems together with your mother and sometimes with your father and your father would recite your mother's poetry which is just so adorable what do you remember about your mum's poetry and your father's recital of them Well, my mother mostly wrote little nature poems. She didn't really know anything about the standards of poetry. She just loved it, and she read it, and she wrote it. And they, I always called them little poems because they were always short. And uh, she loved birds. A lot of them had to do with the birds. But she loved us, and sometimes they just were little poems that were about her love for us. And my father wrote them too. He put them in her Valentine's Day cards and her Christmas card. Any card he gave her always had a little poem in it. And one year in eighth grade, a teacher assigned us to write about country living. And I had no idea what to write because I didn't had never lived in the country. But my parents suggested, why didn't we try to write a poem instead of an essay? And so we all brainstormed ideas. And then I went to my room and wrote the poem and I came back out and read it to them and they made some suggestions. And and so I turned it in and the teacher read it to the class and she put it in her school literary magazine and the journey had begun. The poet was born. Yes, the poet was born. That's right. So all four of your grandparents were born in Italy and emigrated to America. And many of your poems revolve around your experience of growing up as an Italian-American and both the beautiful cultural and culinary richness that that brought, but also how that sometimes made you the other and the prejudice that went along with that. So talk to me a little bit about your Italian-American heritage, maybe and how it shaped you as a poet and someone who loves language. Well, when I was small, my parents used to always say to me, someday you need to marry a nice Italian boy. And when they moved to the suburbs, I was in a school where I was the only one of my kind, except for Paula Barcelona, who went on to New York and became a great designer of bridal gowns, and me. And there weren't any nice Italian boys there. So when I started dating, they kept saying things like, now remember, you need to find a nice Italian boy. Well, I was a very respectful child. I was raised to be a nice Italian girl. And I never talked back to my father, but I wanted to make a statement. So I wrote a poem, and it was my really my first serious poem. I was about 20. And it was called Ragazza, and it's about male brides. And so I showed it to my father, and he looked at me, and he said, do you really feel this way? And I said, yeah, I do. 
And he said, okay then. And he never again said, you need to marry a nice Italian boy. <laughs> and that's when I realized that poetry had power. There is a beautiful poem. It's the very first poem in your collection called Dioramas. But you just recently brought out a collection of works called Solving for X. And the very first poem in that book is called I Am. And that is also about you growing up in this wonderful culinary Italian heritage. So I wondered if you might read that poem for us. Yes, and I think this poem also does give a little tiny hint to that fact of feeling like a loner, like an outsider, because I did experience some prejudice, both when I lived in the city and when I moved out into the suburbs. Okay, this is called I Am. I'm from red sauce, garlic, and fig trees, mantee, wine barrels, and Frank's jewelry. My zii told stories, grew basil, made cannoli. My nano loved O Solo Mio, Da Vinci, La Capella Sestina. I'm from calamari, carciofi, Jamaica's salsitsa, Sunday pasta, Christmas sfingi, homemade anisette. For Maria and Antonio, Bessie and Frank, Salvatore and Marguerite. I'm from Simanja, Vienica, and Chow, Nana's Callous Knees, and Rosaries. I'm from Kansas City, Palermo, Bavonia, and Florence. The sea and the mountains, goats and herbs, Zionini's grin, Nana's gardenias, Nano's mandolin. I'm from floors you can eat on, stiff towels dried on lines, sinks scrubbed to a perfect shine. I'm from homemade ricotta, glistening olive oil, late night wakes, tatted lace, breadboards passed down, the ship Germania from roots without soil, the one left standing, waiting for a place. That is so full of beautiful imagery and passion for the culture that you grew up in. But also, like you say, how it was different from everybody else's. But what a, what a joy to have all of that to reach into as a child. Yes, and my father, once I started writing these poems, he said to me, don't forget your heritage. If you're going to write poetry, you need to preserve that. And I have. Probably over half of my poems are about my family. And they do capture the traditions of our family. I mean, we were American. My parents did not teach us Italian. They wanted us to be Americans, and they were very proud to be Americans. So they stressed that. But at the same time, they wanted to preserve our traditions. Tell me about the title, Solving for X. Well, it comes from one of the poems in the book. It's called Because I Never Learned Calculus. <laughs> and I sent this poem to Nick, your neighbor, and he said, I can teach you calculus. But I, I was one of those people that had a bit of math anxiety. But I realized one day that even though I didn't know anything about calculus, I did know how to do any kind of math I needed to know how to do for my life. You know, no matter what, I could balance my checkbook, I could 
do fractions with recipes. I could do any sort of need I had with quilting. I could use geometry. So math is a big part of my life, but not calculus. But my friend, when she read the manuscript, she said, the title of this book is Solving for X. And I said, why would you say that particularly? And she said, well, because it's the way you do things. And a line from the poem says, I can't read the code of formulas, can't figure slopes or velocity. And I solve for X in circuitous ways, too many steps and no proofs. And she says, that's the way you walk through life. So that became the title. I love it. So you've spent a large part of your career teaching poetry, creative writing to maybe one of the hardest audiences, teenagers, and your students appear in many of your works, and they are some of your most moving poems, as they often revolve around the difficulties those students are facing as children. Gino, whose coat lining was hanging out, Crystal, pregnant, who dropped out of school and whose boyfriend sold her for cash, Jason's mother, who was shot during a raid on her restaurant. There's incredible sadness and heaviness and darkness and truth in these stories. And I wonder what your philosophy is on on telling their stories, if there were stories too dark to tell or too personal. When I first started teaching, it was the same as when I went to school. You know, it was an all-white school and and it was in the top 10 in the state and students were motivated and over the years of teaching a lot of things started to transition and change and i started to have students from all of very diverse backgrounds at one point the esl teacher said in our school district there were over 32 different languages as first languages and i started coming to have students that were dealing with incredible poverty or horrible family lives and I started journaling about it and taking notes and I learned as much from them as they learned from me because they taught me so much about a different kind of life than I had had and how they coped in a hard world and as I got to know them which is why I really liked teaching high school better than anything else I taught was because I did get to spend more time with my students and get to know them as people. But these stories were just very compelling. I I didn't really write stories about all of my successful students, and I had many, many of those, because those stories are not as moving as how a person survives in a hard world. And I debated for a long time whether to write them or not because I didn't want to invade anybody's privacy. So what I did is I changed names, I changed a few details. The stories are true, but some of the details have been shifted so that people wouldn't be able to identify who they were. Well, on the lighter side of your teaching stories is a poem in your book, Dioramas, titled Mrs. Wagner Fields Questions While Teaching Edgar Allan Poe, a found poem. And this was such a beautiful snapshot of your work in a high school classroom. The poem is pretty self-explanatory, but I wondered if you would read that one for us. It's a little longer, but it just makes me laugh every time I read it. It helps if people have read Edgar Allan Poe or they can remember back to their days in high school when they were probably assigned to read stories and poems of Edgar Allan Poe. But when I taught American literature, I always taught Poe. And 
they always asked questions or made statements that I, you know, I started writing down because some of them were just funny. And then after a while, I put them all together and created the poem. So here is Mrs. Wagner fields questions while teaching Edgar Allan Poe, a found poem. Why aren't these stories spooky like the movies? We have to read the whole story. Can't you just sum it up for us? I heard Poe was a drug addict. Did you ever do drugs? I don't understand how that red death got in there. Why does Poe use bosom? Why doesn't he just say what it is? But, do you ever go to haunted houses? You want us to read how many pages in one night? Does a version mean one of several kinds or someone who hasn't had sex? Why does he use so much description? Can't he just tell the story? How will I use this in real life? The movies don't use these big words. What's a casement? What if my parents don't want me to read this story? Are there cliff notes for Poe or an alternative assignment? I thought only parrots could say things like nevermore. Why would anyone name a kid Lygia? Have you ever used the word termagant or sullied in real life? Can we use our notes and a dictionary on the final? Can I just tell you what I know instead of answering the questions? Isn't marrying your cousin illegal? Did Poe get to see any of his stories made into movies? Is it hard to be a famous writer like Poe? So this guy went to all that trouble just to kill a cat? I mean, almost every line makes me want to laugh out loud. It's just such a beautiful set of questions. I love it. So one question I want to ask you is, to what extent the poems in your books are autobiographical? Because there's a few things that I wondered about. The white kitten in your poem, Thinning the Herd, and about the afternoon at the tattoo parlour with your 80-year-old mother-in-law, and about Cousin Lorenzo, and about the raccoon slowly dying on the path. And how much is truth, and how much is fiction? Most of what you've named is true. I have seven tattoos, so that is true, and that is what my mother-in-law wanted in her 80s. On her birthday, she said, I want a tattoo. She kept saying, let me think about it, let me think about it, and then after about a week, she said, I've decided I want a tattoo. So I asked a student in my class who had a bunch of tattoos that were really nice looking, and she said, oh, that's so cool, I'll go with you. And so all three of us went to the tattoo parlor, and we all got a tattoo. So that's true. The raccoon on the path, that really happened. Usually most of it is true. I just changed some details. And a lot of it is things I've observed. I mean, how can a writer not write about what he knows? Well, let's close with a final poem. And this is one that really spoke to me when I read it, because it's something that I think about a lot. And it's called The Last Time. And this is in your Dioramas collection. Would you, would you read that one for us before we close, Mary Frances? The last time. You don't know it's the last time you pulled that red sweater over Barbie or lined up G.I. Joe to lead your soldiers. Last time you clicked tap shoes, grabbed an inner tube, pumped your bike up the hill. 
It could be 20 years before you realize you never drove down Fuller Drive again, never saw Mel Lyons cutting tulips, never did the zoo trip with Pete Pine, never wrote back to Andrea Teague. Last times pile up like a sea of rusty fenders or abandoned pencils in bottom drawers. See you laters float away with promised lunches. Last rites, last words, last chance. Done. Exactly. You just never know when it's the last time. Really beautiful. Mary Frances Wagner's latest book, Solving for X, came out this year and can be ordered from local bookstores along with her other collections. Mary Frances, thank you for all you are doing to persuade people like me that poetry is most definitely worthy of exploration and for turning my pal Nick Kenny into a writer and also for making time to chat. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure spending this time with you. Next month, Daniel Boone Regional Library kicks off its month-long series of One Read events. This year, centred on the novel The Big Door Prize, written by M. O. Walsh, which, if you're wondering, stands for Milton O'Neill Walsh. Like all good novels, it has components of love, loss, bereavement, revenge, dreams, life changes, plus a simple question. What would you do if you knew your life's potential and it was not something that you were already pursuing? If you were a history teacher, but you somehow found out that your life's potential was to be a renowned jazz trombone player, would you risk it all to pursue that? In Walsh's book, this improbable life potential knowledge comes by way of what looks like a photo booth that suddenly appears in the local grocery store and which, with just a quick cheek swab and $2, will use the science of DNA to tell each visitor what they could be if everything worked out just right. And in no time at all, the small town of Deerfield is upended as principals become carpenters, mayors become cowboys, and one housewife finds out that her true destiny is to be royalty. But as the book's narrative voice asks, why would you think there's another life for you, perhaps another possibility inside of you already, when the walk that you take each dawn is so lovely and safe? This is the 21st year for the One Read programme, which is overseen each year by Lauren Williams, who is here to talk about this year's events, in particular, the accompanying One Read art exhibit. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. Do you feel like running the One Read programme is your true calling? <laughs> you know what? I would say being a librarian is probably my, my true calling. I'm not sure about the events management piece of it, but I do. It is one of those parts of my job that I feel extremely lucky to get to do every year. I would say if someone had asked me that about art in the park back in the day, I would say after the event is over, yes, I feel like it's my true calling. <laughs> I completely understand that feeling. <laughs> So the big door prize is Emma Walsh's second novel. His first, My Sunshine Away, was a New York Times bestseller back in 2015. And this book came out in 2020, which is interesting timing as it seems like 2020 was a year when lots of people reconsidered what they wanted life to have in store for them and how they might reinvent themselves. Do you have a sense of whether that was one of the reasons the One Read panel might have chosen this book? I think that's probably fairly likely. I think, yes, 2020 and the following years, I think we all have been rethinking what's important, what what our priorities are, what relationships are really important to us. So I think that that's probably has something to do with it. I also think the sort of element of 
quirkiness to this book. There's an element of lightness is something else that people were looking for as well. We've gotten lots of comments in the past that, you know, the one reads, they're good, but they're always so weighty. They're so issue laden and sometimes dark or heavy or sad. And I think it is true that books that have a lot of issues in them are easier to talk about and easier to program for, you know, a month of events around. Um, Not to say that this book is super light or that is lacking topics. We've got plenty of topics to talk about, but I think it's just there's a quirkiness and a warmth to it that I think is appealing to people as well. Yeah, it does feel after last year's book, Murder Trial and the Murder Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, which was so full of facts and history. It was a very weighty book. This year's did feel very, very light in comparison to that book. And I know the reading panel are asked to consider some questions when they shortlist the books for the public to vote on. Questions like, does the book contain thought-provoking subject matter that encourages discussion? Will the book appeal to a diverse audience? And I always wonder whether they give you any specific feedback. It's a mix. Some, when they share their final votes, do disclose you know, why they're voting the way they're voting. When we have our discussion of the long list of nominees before we narrow them down to the 10 that the panel reads, we do have fairly frank discussion. And we do talk about, would you want to spend a whole month with this book? There are a lot of books we consider that are excellently written, but imagining spending four weeks talking about um, certain really heavy topics is something that we do consider that some of our panelists do consider. You have a large task force of partner organizations that help you plan the long list of events that take place during the one read month in September. Tell us a little bit about some of the events and some of the discussions, as you say. What are the discussions that we're going to have around this book that you have coming up? Yes, yeah. So you mentioned that this is it's a lighter book, but it's not totally devoid of issues to talk about. And one of the threads through the book, um, there's a couple of young teens who are grappling with the death of a peer and teen mental health plays into the novel. So there is going to be a teen mental health panel at the Boone County History and Culture Center. They're a new One Read partner this year. So they are going to host a panel in conjunction with Children's Grove, and that's going to be on Wednesday, September 21st in the evening there. But then we have programs, a Skylark Bookshop is one of our partners, and they're going to do a a program on tarot cards. So this whole theme of trying to look into the future or try to predict what's going to happen to a person There's going to be an impromptu reads tarot and books event. And so they're going to do tarot card readings, but then also recommend books based on those readings, which I think is super fun. And that's Thursday, September 8th. We're doing a a panel at the end of the month on the next chapter, making a career change, a panel led by a spokesperson from Ready uh, here in Columbia, who will then talk to people who have made significant career changes, starting out as one thing, um, a radio personality, for instance, and now they work for a nonprofit and now they're a school teacher, or maybe not these drastic changes that happen in the book. No one <laughs> you know, is leaving their uh, position as a mayor to become a cowboy or anything like that. But just to talk about the nuts and bolts and kind of give practical advice of making a career change. You mentioned COVID and, and uh, I think that the great resignation that has happened during COVID. Um, I think a lot of people are looking to make 
changes. So we're doing a panel like that. So yeah, a wide variety of programs. Back in my Columbia Art League days, I used to be on the One Read Task Force and Cal, along with all street studios, would help come up with a theme for an art exhibit and then get the word out to artists. So tell us a little bit about this year's art exhibit theme and what discussions you had around this. Yeah, so it took us a little while to come up with the theme. I think I think translating a book's themes into something that's going to be a compelling call for submissions for a visual art exhibit is it's a fun challenge, but it is a challenge. And that's why we really appreciate our task force members from Columbia Art League, from Wall Street Studios, and from the Office of Cultural Affairs. So this year, it's possibility, promise. So that's that's the theme. And we're asking people to contribute works that explore the idea of potential or capture a transformation or investigate what someone or something might become. So that's possibility, promise. And we're, we're taking submissions on uh, Friday, August 26th and Saturday, August 27th from noon to four at Orr Street Studios. And we played with some different ideas for the art exhibit theme. Most of them revolved around this kind of idea of transformation or, you know, something starting out as one thing and becoming another. But we also, the book itself, um, the title is from a John Prine song. The Big Door Prize is a John Prine song lyric. And a lot of the chapter titles are John Prine lyrics. And we thought we might do something related to that somehow, but we just couldn't come up with anything concrete or compelling enough. So this is what we decided to to focus on is that idea of possibility. I like the example image you have on the One Read Art Exhibit webpage of a chrysalis and a butterfly, which is a great illustration of possibility and promise. Did somebody already submit that work or was it found by one of the art panel? This was actually found by one of our PR department staff here at the library. Um, It's copyright-free work that they found from a naturalist, I think. So they're fairly old images. Um, He also had a couple other examples, one with blooming flowers. He had another draft that had a a whole peach and then a peach that had been cut in half so you could see the pit. So he had a few different ideas. We also had an image of a person standing in front of what looked like a series of doorways. So there's a number of things I think people could could do. They could look to nature, but they could also look to something uh, more psychological, I think. I know August can be a tricky time to get people's attention as vacations are still happening and then everyone is focused on going back to school. But how many artwork entries do you hope to have each year? This is not a juried show, so all submitted entries are included in the exhibit at Orr Street, correct? Yes, correct. Yes. Everyone who submits a piece, um, you know, there's some guidelines for how they need to be ready to hang or to be displayed if you have like a sculptural piece. But yes, really, I think the ideal is between 30 and 35. We would love to get that number of pieces to fill that Orr Street studio space. And that exhibit will be on display throughout the month of September. And as you said earlier, the date for submission is August the 26th and 27th. But that's all on the website. Daniel Boone Regional Library's annual One Read program kicks off on September the 1st and this year is centred on a work of fiction called The Big Door Prize by M.O. Walsh who will be on this show on Thursday the 1st of September. You can find out more about the program at oneread.dbrl.org and Lauren Williams, thanks for always putting on such a great One Read program each fall and for making time to chat today. Well thank you and I have to thank my colleagues Kat and Kirk and the whole team here at the library and our task force. Thank you so much for making time. And that is it. 
for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening, actor and director John Tracy Egan, Missouri Poet Laureate Mary Frances Wagner, and Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Coordinator Lauren Williams. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!